an ad in a leading U.S. newspaper years ago ran something like this. A young lady seeking a partner. And then it lists the qualities that the supposed partner must possess. Must, it says first, be intelligent. Must be employed. And must love dogs. I suppose that when we looked for partners, those of us who are married, and those of us who are unmarried and are seeking partners, we may choose different characteristics. Perhaps you would have on your must list, must love cats. Whatever you have on that list, there is an underlining reality that every healthy relationship is built upon certain irreducible characteristics and principles. This is true of every relationship, every healthy and sound relationship. There must be certain characteristics by which that relationship will operate and persist. Similarly, every healthy church requires certain irreducible characteristics if it is to be truly the church of Christ. In the letter of John, that is the second letter of John, John lists certain characteristics that must persist in the Christian community if it is to be truly Christian. He does not list all the marks and characteristics of a healthy and vibrant church, but he does list two that are uppermost. Before we look at this, at these two characteristics, let us note that 2nd and 3rd John, these epistles, are among the most neglected books of the New Testament. The second epistle of John is addressed to a single congregation and deals with similar problems that John had dealt with in the first epistle, that is, 1 John. 2 John, then, is written to warn believers against false teachers who had departed from the community of faith. It also has a secondary purpose to encourage Christians to love one another and so to guard against them becoming prey to these false teachers. The false teaching that is evident in 1 John and it is clearly evident in our second epistle has now come to be known as a form of Gnosticism. Gnosticism, which was influenced by Greek thought, prized the supremacy of the intellect. And for that reason, the Gnostics and those of their children believed that one was saved chiefly through the intellect. But more importantly, this Gnostic teaching that showed evidence in the Johnine community was one that prized the spirit 
and rejected matter, that which is physical, as evil. And precisely because the Gnostics believe that, the, that what is spirit is good and what is matter, what is physical and tangent, was evil, they denied the incarnation of Jesus. They denied that the Son of God became human because if matter is evil, there is no way in which the pure God could become enmeshed in a human body which they perceive to be sinful. An offshoot of Gnosticism was Docetism. And the Docetists believed that Jesus appeared to have a body. The, the term Docetism comes from dokia, which means to uh, appear or to seem. So they would argue that Jesus appeared to have a real body, but this was not really so. Centurus, for instance, was a early Gnostic, perhaps a late contemporary of John, the Apostle John. And he taught that the Spirit of Christ came upon the man Jesus, who was a son of Joseph and Mary. The Spirit of Christ, he says, came upon Jesus at his baptism and empowered his ministry. But the Spirit of Christ left Jesus before his crucifixion so that Christ was never crucified. Only the man, Jesus, who was devoid of the Spirit at his crucifixion, he was the one who died and rose again. By and large, then, the Gnostics and the false teaching that John grapples with was one that denied that Jesus Christ has come bodily that is in the flesh. In 2 John, we may see this work has divided into three parts. There is a salutation of the greetings in 2 John 1, verses 1 to 3. Then we have the body of the epistle in verses 4 to 11, and the conclusion in verses 12 and 13. When you look at the body, that is the section verses 4 to 13, or verses 4 to 11, there are three major thoughts that we must examine. First of all, the expression of joy because believers walk in truth. Secondly, the command to love. And thirdly, the warning against false teachers. So first then, the expression of joy because believers are walking in truth. John declares the elder to the elect lady and her children whom I love in truth, and not only I, but also all those who have known the truth, because of the truth which abides in us and will be with us forever, grace, mercy, and peace will be with you from God the Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of the Father, in truth and love. He begins with an identification of the writer, and he describes him as the elder, the presbyterus. Literally, the term elder or presbyterus refers to an older person. But John, when he writes the elder, does not mean that he's saying this old man is writing. He's not referring to his age, but more likely referring to his status as a spiritual leader in the church because presbyterus was used of 
the spiritual leaders of the Jews. You see that, for instance, in, in Acts chapter 4, verse 5. They were the leaders, the presbyteros. They were the leaders, the spiritual Israel, leaders of Israel. And this term presbyteros was taken over in the church, in Christian community, to apply to Christian leaders. And you find that in Acts 11.30 or 1 Timothy 5.17, Titus chapter 1 verse 5, Paul speaks to Timothy and Titus about the qualifications for elders, not old men, but spiritual leaders, spiritual male leaders in the church. So that when John says the elder, he's referring then to his calling and appointment by God to serve as a spiritual leader in the church. He calls himself the elder. And we know that John was the same John who was exiled on the Isle of Patmos. It is Eusebius, the early historian, who a recent scholar described as the first thoroughly dishonest historian. Very, I've never heard of anything like that before. The first thoroughly dishonest historian. Eusebius tells us about the lives of the emperors of Rome. And his work has always been trusted until recently. But he tells us, and we have no doubt to disbelieve, he tells us that John was released from the Isle of Patmos after the death of the emperor Domitian. And he returns to Ephesus. We know that John was active. John the apostle was active in the, in the church in Ephesus. It could likely be that it is from Ephesus that he writes to these communities and to this particular community here in 2 John. And he writes as an elder and addresses the elect lady and her children. Now, we need to know that when he talks about the elect lady, he's not speaking about a particular woman who had some children in her home. He's referring to a church and the members of that church, to the elect lady and her children. And you know that that is so because of how he ends the epistle. The children of your elect sister greet you. And so the elect sister that he's referring to is the Christian community in which he serves and from which he writes this epistle. He calls them the elect. And it is a designation then that refers to their favored status that they have been chosen of God, that they have been set apart from eternity. And John is within the, at least the biblical milieu because scriptures speak about God's children as those whom God chose, set apart before the world was created to be his own. One only has to read passages like Romans chapter 8. In 29 and following, verse 33, uh, Colossians 3, 12, or 1, Peter chapter 1, where these references are made to the elect. God's children are God's elect. Now, John describes them as those whom he loves. To the elect lady and her children, that is to the church and its members, whom I love in truth. And he says, not only does he love this church, but that this church is also loved by those who have come to know the truth of the gospel. And the reason that they love this church is because of the truth which abides in them and will be 
in them forever. And so this church is a loved church, not only by John, but all who are lovers of the truth, all who know the truth. Now having greeted them, grace, mercy, and peace will be with you from God the Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of the Father, an interesting designation of the Son. He says that grace, mercy, and peace will be with them from God and from the Lord Jesus Christ, and that grace, mercy, and peace will be with them as they hold truth and love. It will be with them in truth and love. It is after then this greeting, after identifying himself the writer and the addressees, the elect lady and her children, and having pronounced divine blessing upon this congregation, that John now comes to the first important truth in the passage, in which he rejoices that they are walking in the truth. I rejoice greatly that I found some of you, your children, walking in truth. We do not know why he says some of you are walking in truth. It could imply that there were others who had been dragged away by the false teachers. Or it could have been that he had only been told about some of these. Whatever the reason, he's rejoicing that a, a portion of the congregation are walking in truth. And this term, peripatio, to walk, to walk in truth, is really then a description of those who live in the truth. John places great emphasis on truth, aletheia, some five times in the first four verses he refers to truth. And this remarkable emphasis on truth emphasizes its importance to the writer. It's in fact truth, aletheia, a very important term in the Johnine writings. In fact, it occurs nine times in 1 John. And 1 John refers to truth as something that one not only believes, but that one does. So if one were to read in 1 John 6, if we say we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not do the truth. Truth is not something that we, really, we, we only hold intellectually, but truth is what we practice. Truth is what we do. John also defines truth not only as practical, that is what and how we live, but truth as reality itself. And so he says that if one claims to have fellowship with him and walks in darkness, he says that one lies, does not practice the truth. But then he also makes it close, clear that, that truth abides in us. It's a reality. We lie and do not practice the truth. And so truth is not only something it's done, it is also reality. It is the opposite of lying. John, essentially, though, describes truth not only as the opposite of lying, not only as that which we do, but he describes truth in terms of God's revelation in Jesus Christ. In other words, Christ, in the writings of John, is synonymous with truth. 
And this is not only found in the epistles of John, it is found in the letter of John. I think I quoted this morning John 1.14, where John says, And the word became flesh and dwelt amongst us, and we beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Our Lord Jesus Christ is a repository of grace, kindness, and mercy, and truth. He says, for the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. John links grace and particularly truth with Jesus Christ. And in that very well-known passage in the Gospel of John, chapter 14, verse 6, Jesus says, I am the way the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now in 1 John, he identifies Jesus with truth. And he says, And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true, His Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life, 1 John 5, verse 20. This is a fundamental fundamental verse in all of Scripture, not only in the writings of John, because he says that the Lord Jesus Christ is true. He is the truth. He is the true, he's the Son of God, and he is the true God and eternal life. For John, then, truth is personified... In Jesus Christ. Truth is not merely intellectual or propositional. It is personal. To know truth, according to John then, is to know Christ. But it is to know Christ who has come in the flesh. Christ who is the Son of God who took humanity and became real man who lived amongst us for 33 years who perfectly obeyed the law of God and who died on the cross for our sins and rose again and has ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God, but he is the God-man, the one who has flesh and yet who is the Son of God, the the spiritual Son of God. And so for John... He rejoices that they are walking in truth. And as they walk in truth, it means that they are persevering in their faith in the incarnate Jesus Christ. Now, having rejoiced then in the fact that they are abiding in truth, they are walking in truth, we see then first this expression of joy because they are walking in truth. But we also notice the exhortation to walk in love or to live in love. We see this now in verse 5. He says, and now I plead with you, lady, referring again to the church, not as though I wrote a new commandment to you, but that which you have had from the beginning, that we love one another. This is love that we walk according to his commandments. This is a commandment that as you have heard from the beginning, you should walk in it. Since the secessionists, those who had left the church, had divided the community, it was important for the church to close rank 
And the way by they, they close rank was to love one another, and by so doing, they minimize further defection. So John encourages this church. He praises God. He marvels and glories that they are walking in truth, but now he commands them to persist in love. As we have clearly emphasized over the years, the New Testament term agape, love, denotes self-sacrificial regard and action for the good of others. It is to give oneself sacrificially for the benefit and advantage of another. Now John commands them to love. And he reminds them, I plead with you, I beg you, you believers, you children of God. And what I'm asking you to do, he says, is not a new commandment. This commandment I ask you to, to, to perform, that is to love, is not some new obligation that I'm placing on you, but that which you have had from the beginning. Meaning that when you first heard the gospel, you were commanded then to love. So this is not now a new or impractical burden that is now being placed upon you. The commandment to love is at the essence of the very heart of what it means to be a Christian. Because when we are called upon to believe in Jesus Christ, we are called upon immediately to love God and to love God's people. So John says, when you heard the gospel, at the very beginning, you were told that your obligation is to love. I'm not therefore placing a new command or burden upon you. Now, John says, I plead with you, lady, not as though I wrote a new commandment to you, but that which you have had from the beginning. What is the new commandment? What is this commandment that you received at the beginning? This commandment is that we love one another. John, as he has much to say about truth, has much to say about love. Having seen that love is the sacrificial giving of oneself for the benefit of others, John defines love and he tells us that, in fact, God's character is love. God is love. He tells us that God's love is manifested primarily in the giving of his son to die for us. How did God show his love? Not in sentimental, cushy feelings for us. I'm not saying that God is devoid of emotion. But what we're saying is that God's love is not essentially sentimental. And so John says, in this the love of God was manifested towards us. That God has sent his only begotten son into the world that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. 1 John 4, 9-11. What John says is that God demonstrates, God manifested his love to us, and he did it by sending his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to be the propitiation for our sins. He says it in perhaps more familiar language. When he reminds us, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, the love of God, the amazing generosity of God has been shown to us by giving his son to die for our sins. And John says, 
this sacrificial love of God that is revealed in the giving of his son should therefore be the model and the motivation of our love. In other words, it is precisely because God has loved us. It is precisely because he has loved us sacrificially and given his best for us that we are to love one another and sacrificially give of our best for their advantage. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another analogously, similarly, by giving sacrificially for their advantage. This love, then, is first of all revealed in God's character. It is demonstrated in the giving of his son. And John will tell us that love is a sure sign of spiritual life. So, in 1 John 3, 11 and 14, For this is the message you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Not as Cain, who was of the wicked one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his works were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not marvel, brethren, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed from death to life, because we love the brethren. He who does not love his brother abides in death. So John not only tells us that love is at the very heart of God himself, and that love is given in Christ, John says that the love for one another is a sure sign that we have come to spiritual life. I've always been mystified, and I suppose I will forever be mystified, because I, I often hear some people say, you know, yeah, I, I love Christ, but I have nothing to do with the church. Or I would go to church if it were not for Christians. They love Christ, but they don't love Christians. They don't love the people of God. And I would say to you that they do not love Christ. Because wherever there is a genuine love for Christ, there must be love for Christ's children. You must love the people of God. You must wish to be with them. You must serve them. You see, it's a sign that we are Christians, that we are saved, that we love our brothers. Why? Because fundamentally we are lovers of ourselves. The, that which energizes us and that for which we live in this world is ourselves. We put numero uno in the first place. We think about ourselves. We think about life in terms of how it relates to us. We live for ourselves, for our advantage. But when the Lord saves us, he delivers us from self-love. He delivers from the idol of self and enables us to love one another. To think of others before us, to, to put their advantage before our own advantages. You see, so John sees love for one another as the evidence that we are genuine Christians. Beloved, let us love one another, for God is love, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. Now John says that they must walk in love. In verse 6, in our passage in 2 John chapter 1, verse 6, this is love that we walk according to his commandments. Now, John says, the love that we should have 
for God must be demonstrated by obedience. This is love that we walk according to his commandments. Our Lord Jesus said the same thing. This is the commandment, he says, that if we love, that is, if we keep his commandments, if we love him, we must keep his commandment, John 14, verse 15. Now, John tells us this is love that we walk according to his commandment. So those who love God are those who are going to live in obedience to God. Love for God expresses itself in obedience to God. This is love that we walk according to his commandment. The, the, the way God wants us to show love for him is primarily through obedience. This is love that we walk according to his commandment. This is the commandment, singular, that as you have heard from the beginning, you should walk in it. Well, what's the commandment? Well, the commandment is love. So what is happening here in verse 6? What John is saying is simply this, that love expresses itself in obedience to God, and that obedience to God expresses itself in love. So that where there's an obedient person, that person will love God. But where there's a person who loves God, that person will also be the obedient person. And so what he does is he shows us that love and obedience, though they are distinguishable, they cannot be separated. This is love that we walk according to his commandments. So love expresses itself in obedience. This is the commandment. What is the commandment? The commandment that you have heard from the beginning and that you should walk in it is love. So love obeys and obedience leads to love. They are kept together. Now having then called them to love and expressed their love in obedience to Christ, we come then to verse 7 to 11, which form then the final major section of the middle portion, the body of this book. And this now is a movement away from an expression of joy in, in the fact that they walk in truth. It moves beyond the, 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 the command to love to an admonition to God against false teachers. John explains in verse 7 why it is important for believers to walk in truth and to love. For... Many deceivers have gone out into the world who do not confess Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh. This is a deceiver and an antichrist. John says, listen, the reason you are to walk in truth and love is because there are false teachers running amok, running riot outside the community. And the implication is that they are still, in some sense, endangered by these false teachers. Now, what he does is he lists, in verse 7, four truths about these false teachers. First of all, he describes them as deceivers. Those who twist the truth and lead people astray. They are deceivers. Secondly, he says that they have gone forth into the world. They have taken their message outside the community, the Jonan community. And they were actively seeking converts. And members of the congregation to which John wrote are still vulnerable to their toxic influence. Thirdly, he describes the nature of their error. For he 
reminds this community, many deceivers have gone into the world. They are deceivers. They've gone into the world, secondly, third, who do not confess Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh. That's the heart of the error. They refuse to confess. Homologia. They refuse to agree. They refuse to say the same thing that the Son of God has come in the flesh. They are denying the incarnation, which is at the very basis of the Christian faith. They do not agree that he has come in the flesh. John understands this is central to the life of faith. In fact, when he wants to give a test, a criterion by which we know who belongs to God, he tells them in 1 John 4, 2 and 3, he says, by this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses, that is, that when he says every spirit that confesses, he's not talking about some evil spirit who is actually confessing, but rather he says when, every spirit who confesses means every person who claims to speak by the spirit. So every spirit that confesses, everyone who claims to speak by the spirit, and confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh of God. One of the ways you know that somebody is being directed by the Spirit of God, as a genuine Christian, is that they confess that Christ has come in the flesh. Conversely, every spirit that does not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is none of God and is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is already in the world. So John tells us that a mark of identify, of, di of distinguishing between those who are sent by God, who come from God, who belong to God, is that they acknowledge Christ has come in the flesh, that he is God in flesh who has come into this world. So John says, this false teacher, which is, a, is first of all, those who are deceivers, these are those who have gone into the world, and they are the ones who refuse to confess the incarnation, Christ has come in the flesh. And fourthly, he says that these, these false teachers, this is a deceiver, the one who does not accept Christ coming in the flesh. This is a deceiver and an antichrist. He calls the one who rejects Christ's bodily coming as an antichrist. Now, the scriptures have much to say about the antichrist. We see that in Second Thessalonians, for instance. John is not here saying that the one who refuses to acknowledge that Christ has come in the flesh is the Antichrist, the man of lawlessness who will come at the end of the age to lead people astray, but rather the one who denies that Christ has come in the flesh is Antichrist. In other words, he is opposed to and against Christ. He has the spirit of the Antichrist that is he's influenced by a satanic force. And so John says, this is what you need to guard against. These deceivers, these who have gone into the world, these who do not identify and accept Christ as having come in the flesh, these who have an anti-Christian or anti-Christ spirit. Now John warns against these. And he says that they are to look to themselves. They are to be careful and guard. 
that they do not lose the things that they have worked for, but that they may receive a full reward. I know that there is some textual difficulty here in the pronouns that are used. We, whether it's we or us, and so on. We're not going to get caught up here in that discussion. But he says that they must look to themselves. They must take careful attention to themselves. That they do not lose what they have worked for. He's not saying that they have that salvation is by their own works, but he does admit that believers are involved in their own salvation. They, they are those who strive to attain the prize. They are those who work out their salvation in fear and trembling. He's saying, "Do be on your guard, lest you lose the things for which you have been striving." That is to enter into rest to see the face of God. And he's clearly saying that if you fall prey to these false teachers, you will be disqualified from entering into the kingdom of God. Because if they deny that Christ has come in the flesh, if they deny Christ, and he's the only Savior, then there can be no salvation. Now, he makes it clear in the following verse that if they depart from the faith in Jesus Christ and the gospel, they prove that they do not have a relationship with God. So he says, look to yourself, that you do not lose the things for which we have worked or which you have worked, but that we may receive a full reward. And then in verse 9, whoever transgresses, and the word here, transgresses, means to run ahead, to go ahead. Whoever goes ahead and does not abide in the doctrine of Christ, so that whoever goes beyond the doctrine of Christ, whoever leaves the doctrine of Christ and progresses. That person does not have God. He who abides in the doctrine of Christ have both the Father and the Son. Now John warns them. In verse 10, if anyone comes to you and does not bring this doctrine of Christ having come in the flesh, do not receive him in your house, it could refer to the house, their own private homes, or it could refer to the church, the house church in which they were gathered. Whatever is the right interpretation here, John is saying that these false teachers are not to be provided hospitality. Now we know, at least from the book of Hebrews, that hospitality is one of the virtues that Christians must display. But for John, hospitality has limits. He says that those who deny Christ, deny the truth about Christ and the gospel, are not to be entertained. There's an issue as to how we deal with Jehovah's Witnesses. Do we sit down with them and converse with them? Or do we reject their teaching? He says they're not to be entertained. He makes it very clear. Because fundamentally they are denying the gospel they are seen as heretics who have gone beyond the truth of the gospel and their task their brief in life is to proselytize to convert and so John says if anyone comes to you and does not bring this doctrine do not receive him in your house nor greet him for he who greets him shares his evil deed. If we sit and listen and welcome false teachers, we are in some sense tacitly sharing in their evil work. If you give him a hearing, you're sharing in his evil works. My friends, 
There's much more to be said, but I want to draw a few observations here. First, you and I must remember that the Christian community is first and foremost a community of truth. At the heart of what it means to be a Christian is that we are committed to truth and particularly to the truth of the gospel of Christ. We live in a generation that rejects truth, that believes in that which is relative, and especially biblical truth is rejected. But we are built on truth. Without truth, there is no Christian community. And many will view Christ as a good man and even a prophet. But they will deny that he is God who has come in the flesh. For us, it is essential that we hold to the gospel and we hold to the truth that is in Christ. Because if Christ has not come in the flesh, if he is not God in the flesh, first of all, we have no salvation. We need a supernatural being to deliver us from eternal death. So only God can deliver us from his own wrath. And so God the Son came into the world. But we also needed a perfect man to save us because it is man who sinned. And so Christ took flesh. What I'm saying is if Christ, if God did not come into the world in flesh, there would be no cross. And if there is no cross, there is no salvation. We must hold to the truth of the gospel. We must not deviate from the truth of Jesus Christ, who has come, God in flesh, to save sinners. This means that we are not to be spiritual progressives. Now, you may be progressive in your politics. You may be progressive in a number of ways. But you can never be a spiritual progressive. You can't move beyond the gospel. You can't move beyond Christ. He says, whoever transgresses, whoever goes beyond and does not abide in the doctrine of Christ does not have God. The mark of a genuine Christian is that year after year and decade after decade, he remains centered in Jesus. Instead of leaving Christ, we grow deeper in him. We learn to know him more and to love him more. What I'm saying is, in this year, we must put down deeper roots in Christ. We must not be progressive going beyond Christ, but getting deeper to know him and to love him. We must remember that defection from the truth comes because of subtle and incremental doses of error. In other words, Satan doesn't always come out and deny the things of Christ. Sometimes he just feeds us a little bit of error, little doses, give us little pieces at a time. I'm reminded of what is called a silly story told of a Scottish couple, an older couple flying to New York. And they were visiting their children and first grandchild. And halfway over the Atlantic, the pilot comes over the intercom and says, this is the pilot, this is the captain speaking. I regret to inform you that we have lost one of our three engines. But do not worry, we can fly on two engines 
and will arrive in New York an hour later than usual. Half an hour later, he comes back and he says, I'm sorry to announce that we have lost the second engine, but there's no cause for alarm. We can fly on one engine. However, we'll arrive in New York three hours later than usual. The grandmother was a little bit annoyed and said with some irritation to the grandfather, my dear, if the third engine goes, we'll be up here all night. <laughs> what is interesting is that the pilot didn't give them the bad news, all the bad news at once. He didn't tell them that we're flying on one engine. He broke it to them bit by bit. Because if he had told them, you know, we had one engine on which we were flying, we were halfway across the Atlantic, he might have a panic behind him. So he fed them little doses. And when Satan wants us to deviate from truth, he doesn't always come out with outright denials. He doesn't always come with a full frontal assault on our faith. It's a little bit here and a little bit there. He dangles before us materialism as the main goal of life. He leads us into scholarship that defies science. He encourages us to live in a world where morals are relative. And slowly, bit by bit, he weakens our commitment to Christ and the gospel. We must therefore reject everything, whether it be evident, prominent, or subtle, that deviates and distracts from the truth that is in Christ. We must believe the truth about Christ as the only Savior, and we must be doers of the truth. But not only must we remember that Christianity is, first and foremost, the Christian community is a community of truth. We need to remember that the Christian community is also a community of love. And that love is to be sacrificial and practical. 1 John 3.17 says, But whoever has this world's good and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? Love is practical. You see, love binds the Christian community together. Our commitment to work together for the good of one another safeguards us from schisms and divisions. It means, therefore, that if we are to be a healthy church, these two characteristics, truth and love, must be the vanguard that as we advance as individual Christians, we are to advance in truth, getting deeper into truth. But as we advance, we are to advance deeper in love. You see, if we have truth without love, it leads to sterility, death, and lifelessness. The church in Ephesus was a church abounding in truth. It could sniff out heresy. They had their antennas attuned to heresy. They could, they could identify a heretic just like that. They were geniuses at finding out those who deviated from the faith. But they lacked love. But Jesus says, I remember your first love. Truth without love leads to sterility, emptiness, lifelessness. 
But love without truth leads to sentimentality. You see, genuine love must be guided by truth. And genuine truth must be tempered by love. And if we are to make a mark in our community, we must stand by the truth, whatever it costs. We must never deviate from the truth, but we must also be producing and demonstrating love. We must be calling one another when they are sick. We must be visiting them. We must be helping them practically. Don't just see the brother hungry and say, no, you know, I, I wish you would feel filled and I, the person is half naked. I wish you feel warm. No, do something. Yeah, you see, the, the Christian community must ex exhibit love. These are two genuine marks of genuine Christianity. And they must be present in our church. May God fill us with his truth and fill us with love for Jesus' sake. Amen.